very unexpected, uh, out of the blue, and um, a little bit overwhelming because uh, the other folks, um, people like Bill Hardy and um, Brian Walsh and uh, Brian Crozer, Pam Dunsford, they're, they're all pretty big names in our industry. So it was uh, completely unexpected, out of the blue, And um, but I have to be honest, I'm thrilled to bits. Great to hear. Jay, take us back. How did you and when did you first become involved in the wine industry? Well, by accident, really, because I wanted, always wanted to be um, a vet in the horse racing industry, but didn't get the grades at matriculation. So I did the best agricultural degree I could get into at Roseworthy, which was winemaking, and um, went straight from high school. So I was like 17, so technically ineligible for the century evaluation classes. But I sort of fell in with a, a fantastic class, and I guess you don't realise until way, way down the track that I really got lucky because I landed with, um, I think it was about 18 lads and two girls and um, the other lads had you know, had been working for Villa Maria in, in New Zealand forever, Rosie Butler. But I ended up in a class with guys like Mike Brykovich from Kumir River and Peter Barry from um, Jim Barry Wines and Chris Ringland who literally was the apprentice with Rob O'Callaghan that, that you know, did great things down on Crondorf Road and Martin Shaw from Shaw and Smith and Nick Walker from O'Leary Walker, Rolfie Binder from their winery. So I was in this class of tremendous folks that you don't realise to way down the track, you know, pillars of the industry. And, you know, at the time, I, I just kind of got into it and, and realised that um, it was a tremendous industry. Although at the time, you know, when I did my first vintage, you had, you had to do a vintage to get your degree in your final year. And it was the vine pool years. So we were in a very tough time as an industry. Mm. Yeah. And it was weird because I couldn't get a vintage for, for love nor money. And um, I just didn't realise at the time that girls didn't work in the cellar. Uh, and there weren't any female winemakers apart from the odd one that owned their own winery. So I got lucky again. And my distillation teacher, Bob Baker, spoke to young graduate from Roseworthy College, Johnny Glazer, who was working for Wolf Glass, and they had like all of 14 employees at the time. And um, he said, would you just give this girl a job so she can get a degree? And they were getting um, all their fruit crushed initially, red wines at Masterson at the time with Peter Lehman and at um, Bazardo's uh, with Doug Lehman. So there was road tankers coming and going. So Johnny said, well, you can just unload road tankers. And that, and that lasted for two weeks, and then I got a job, job in the cellar. So... It kind of went from there, and I was I was lucky with the Barossa. They they adopted me, and yeah, here I am. Here you are, and, and that's mm. interesting that you say about at that time. You know, there weren't really a lot of women working in the in the cellars. There, of course, no. a very different story these days. Oh, tremendously, and and of course, I didn't even it didn't even occur to me. You know, I just thought, well, I'm the only one really in the the group that hasn't got a winery. So you know, I'm sort of starting from. Uh, bare ground, so obviously it's hard to get a job. But in reflection, on reflection, but you know that's how it was. But I, I didn't really realise at the time, and I just did the best I could uh, with the job I was given by Johnny Glazer. And then, of course, I graduated to looking after his barrel ferment shed, which was which was a magic uh, opportunity. And um, and like I said, I got adopted because I, you know, they said to me, well. What's your name? I said, Jane Ferrari. And they said, well, that's no good in the Barossa. Definitely not German enough. So from now on, you'll be Jane Ferrari Schnitter. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what does that mean? And there was a funny phrase in the valley at the time called a schluck and a Schnitter, which was a drink and a sandwich. And they said, and, you know, 
really, girls should be in the house, so you're going to be called Frau. Frau Ferrari-Schnitter. And that's so anyone that's known me forever in the valley often, often call me Frau or Schnitter, and, and it's kind of like pretty neat because in a, in a lovely way, I got adopted into a, into the valley and boarded with families and, you know, was able to make a place for myself in, in the industry here. You know you're well and truly accepted when you get a nickname. That's sort of like the badge of yeah. acceptance, isn't it? Yeah, especially when you don't give yourself a nickname. Like, that's always fairly tragic. <laughs> um, it, yeah, when you get, yeah. And, and, of course, you know, then Blasses, I mean, they really did take me under their wing and it was a different time and, it was a vintage festival year and um, letter in the post at Wolf Blast Wine saying that I'd been nominated as a um, contestant in the vintage festival queen competition. And I went into like panic mode. I, I, you've got to be joking me. And then it turned out to be a lark. But um, they trundled me around the winery on a forklift with a, a, a spanner, a broken spanner for my scepter and a, a funny little crown they made me out of a barrel hoop. It was just, it was a different time. You know, it was, I was very lucky. I, I landed well, and Johnny Glazer was a, a great champion and a, and a great teacher. I've never seen anybody with such palate recall. And, you know, he was 90 pounds ringing wet. Well, he still is 90 pounds ringing wet and was a chain smoker, but had the most extraordinary palate recall, uh, you know, I'd ever seen. And so by luck, I landed somewhere where, you know, I had a, a fantastic mentor as well, you know. Amongst your roles over a long career, um, you lumber for a couple of decades as a, a storyteller. Mm-hmm. What did that mm-hmm. role involve? Well, that was a lucky one too, you know, because I, I was looking after Celador and events and, and doing a lot of work with um, incoming distributors from interstate and overseas. And Rob Hill-Smith, who was the managing director at the time, decided that he was going to take a, a concept that he'd read about from Robert Mondavi where... They foresaw the way that the world of wine was going to be sort of corporatised, amalgamation and consolidation. And, and there was a kind of a theory of how family-owned wineries could compete. And it was to build your technical people or take a technical person from your, your winery that was that could hold a conversation and, and turn them into a, an ambassador of sorts that could go out um, on a regular basis and, and build a circuit of sorts with the press, the trade and consumers, but that was direct from the winery. And then the winery could have, you know, at least a little bit of control of their own destiny. So he thought this was an excellent idea and he put it into practice and he, and he said to me, he said, well, I'm going to send you. And I was quite a little bit overwhelmed because I didn't really see myself as a PR person, but out we went into the arena and it was a very steep learning curve. We were fortunate in Australia and New Zealand that the family distributed themselves along with other wineries, so you had the network that you, that you knew well. But once you get outside of Australia, you put your wine into someone else's hands as, as a distributor, and Yolumba was distributed at the time in 33 states of America. So you had to make friends with 33 different distributors mm. and convince them that you were worthwhile working with so that you could get access to the market, so that you could help sell the wine, place the wine. And it was a really steep learning curve because I was from production. I wasn't from marketing. And um, it works really differently all around the world. And, and uh, it was a great opportunity. And here you are, instead of working in Adelaide and Sydney and Melbourne, which you knew well, you're working in New York and in Los Angeles and, um, and Vancouver. And that was extraordinary. At the beginning, I was green as grass because... Um, I thought you got into New York. I thought you got off the airplane at the airport and caught the bus to the city. I didn't even realise that 
free air force than you, you know. Going overseas, what mm-hmm. sort of opportunities did that open up once though you were into into those um, you know international markets? Oh, I love theatre with a passion, and um, when I had my nights off, I always made sure if I was in New York or London that I saw something on the boards, you know. So just out of the box to be able to go and see Helen Mirren live on stage, you know, when you've when you've got your day off. But the forces of fate jump in too, and and I'd always been keen on. Hugh Grant and and we were walking across um, Leicester Square one Sunday night to go for dinner and um, I'd always said to the girls, "Oh, look, if I see him, you know, he'll he'll be able to run, but he won't be able to hide." <laughs> and of course, and of course, you know, there was a, a birthday party for Prince Charles one night, and we happened to just lurk around with the policewoman outside. No one else was there, and out popped Nick Cave. Had a chat to him, the three of us. Out popped uh, Joanna Lumley. It was just one of those nights. And then out pops Hugh Grant. And, of course, I get out, nothing. And he's <laughs> gone down into the car park. And the girls gave me such a hard time saying, oh, you were going to do this. You were I said, Les, I know, I've just blown my chance. <laughs> and the next, minute, the next minute he popped up and came back up. And I don't know where the voice came from, but in my golden tones, I knocked out, oh, excuse me, Hugh, I was just wondering if you could sign this autograph for me. And he looked at me and he came over and he said, you're not from England. I said, no, I'm from Australia. And we had a 15, 20-minute chat and for the life of me, I cannot remember what we said. (laughs) It was just hormones went into backflip and I just thought, you know what, I've made it. And you know what, you just don't get those opportunities in a normal life. So I really have to thank the forces of fate and... um, Johnny Glates, so Rob O'Callaghan and Rob Hillsmith for giving me those opportunities. What a, what a great ride. How wonderful. So over the yeah. years, Jane, how, how have you seen the story of South Australian wine evolve and the response to that, particularly internationally? I think it's been really interesting because when I was a youngster in the industry and I was doing my first vintage, there were these three-dimensional giants in the Barossa like Peter Lehman and, and Bob McLean, who was at Orlando and then St. Hallett's and um, Wolfie Blass. Charlie Melton, Stuart Blackwell, uh, Robert Callahan, they were all like these three-dimensional characters in the industry and there were these grand old statesmen like John Dickery and, and um, Phil Laffer and they were such characters and they were making great inroads uh, in um, England at the time. Hadn't really tapped into America, but starting. And so I was able to see these great characters at work. Uh, Maggie Beer had the pheasant farm and there was the huge Friday long table lunches where, you know, they solved the problems of the wine industry worldwide. And, and, and it was just quite an extraordinary thing to be on the edge of. And like I said, it was the vine pool time when, you know, there were massive, there were huge piles of vines being pulled out around the brosser and, and just being set alight, you know. And um, yes, we lost some cherry varieties that we didn't need, but we also lost a lot of great Shiraz and Grenache as well. So, you know... Then it was kind of like we saw the consolidation of Shiraz in the Barossa and become synonymous with the Barossa worldwide and the quality across the board just lifted and lifted and lifted and lifted and more winemakers came out of Roseworthy and and did apprenticeships in the industry and then Charles Sturt started, which was very practically based and Wait was doing great things and I think in a relatively short period of time, we got to a stage where the winemakers, the viticulturalists and the wine researchers in Australia had done such a good job that we were in a position where good wine was everywhere and great wine was common, you know. And the consumers knew it too. I mean, it's been a golden age for 
Australian consumers, I think. And, and I think we've now come around full circle where we're in a position at the moment where we've got this huge amount of volume of really good wine and a lot of great wine and some of the markets aren't as easily accessed as they were before and there's a huge amount more of competition because South America, South Africa uh, and everyone in Europe wants all the market share that everyone else has got. So it's a lot more competitive and also there's been a huge amount of planting down in Tasmania. That's making a massive difference to our industry. But in South Australia, you know, I think we're in a a quite an extraordinary position because our reputation worldwide is gold, really. Shiraz is synonymous with the Barossa. Riesling between Eden Valley and um, Clare has consolidated. Grenache has been a sleeper for a long, long time and has now arrived. We've got this extraordinary viticultural treasure trove of ancient vines in the Barossa and, and, and McLaren Vale that are pushing out Grenaches that are you know, challenging anything from anywhere. We always like to say in the Barossa that you know, Grenache delivers what Pinot Noir promises and um, the rest of the world's found it, you know. It's not just that. You've got, you know, you've got what Ashley Ratcliffe is doing up in the Riverland with Ricotera, like with all those weird and wonderful varieties. He's got a variety up there from Portugal, I think, that he adds, as a, instead of adding acid, he adds this variety because it's a really zippy variety. So he's doing that. And, I mean, you know, it doesn't really matter where you go in our state. There's really interesting things going on, you know. Absolutely. Let alone the Adelaide, let alone the Adelaide Hills. You know, there's sparkling wine coming out of Deviation Road up there that's making people really take a good hard look at what's possible.